The Linux Reality Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Media, spreading the knowledge of innovators through its books, online services, magazines, and conferences. Visit them today at O'Reilly.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is Linux Reality, episode number 83, and this is going to be the second part of the uh, Inkscape podcast that uh, Richard Quarren has so uh, kindly contributed to the show. I'm so glad that uh, everybody really enjoyed that first part, so this will be part two. Uh, let's see, a couple things here up front. Um, I had actually meant to uh, uh, talk about this last week, but I just forgot. But uh, I got a, uh, a an invitation, I think, this is something that a lot of podcasters received a, a, a um, invitation to attend the KDE 4.0 launch event in January. It's at the Google uh, headquarters in, uh, in California and Google's uh, uh, paying for the hotel rooms and stuff. And uh, it's just a couple of days. I think it's like a Thursday through a Saturday uh, in mid January. And I think I'm actually going to, going to go. I, I sort of, I mean, I confirmed, uh, I think we might actually make a, you know, family trip out of it or something. So, uh, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a hundred percent confirmed yet, uh, as far as I'm, you know, for my plans, but I'll let you all know more about that, uh, you know, as the time comes. So hopefully that will work out. That would be a lot of fun. I uh, also wanted to mention something. I was going to save this for a couple of weeks, but it actually came up in the forums. Uh, as, as those of you who've been listening for a while, you may remember last year in uh, in December, I took uh, you know basically a month off, and for the holidays, I plan to do that again. I'm not quite sure of when I'll do it. You know, it may be just the month of December. It may be kind of mid December to mid January, maybe to cover the the time I'm gone if I go to this uh, KDE event. I don't know. We'll see. So I'm still working on that, but I do plan to to do that again. Uh, so there will be a, a, a break in there at some point, but I'll let you know more about that, you know, as we get a little bit closer to it. And then, uh, lastly, I just wanted to, again, you know, thank everybody who's contacted me about doing guest, uh, segments and, and the people who sent in the listener tips, please keep them coming. You know, if you have an idea for a guest segment, just drop me an email at linuxreality at gmail.com and uh, let me know. I'm sure we can work it out. And if you'd like to uh, record a you know listener tip, we do have that contest going for the LPI Linux certification in a nutshell. Just uh, record a little listener tip and send it to me. Uh, send it to me as an email attachment if you, if you like. And uh, you know, you know, we're going to have this little contest through the end of November. So we've got another listener tip coming up this week. But for now, let's get to part two of, In- of Inkscape. Now, I'd like to discuss a few more advanced op- operations. You can um, you can also change your document properties, for instance. At first, you won't have to. Every time you open up Inkscape, you'll get what looks like a, a letter size um, document, eight and a half by eleven inches, um, and that's you know to give you an idea. I use Inkscape, you know, all the time to fiddle around. And I don't think I've ever changed the default um, document property 
um, but you can change it. I have changed it in the past or gotten rid of the border or whatever. Um, but it has a bunch of, um, uh, when you bring up the properties, document properties dialog box, you can vary a lot of different things. It has three tabs. You can change the default units, the background color, the page size. Um, so you have, you know, A4 uh, letter size, a whole whack of different paper sizes. To uh, it has different icon template sizes. You know, 16 by 16, 32 by 32, 48 by 48, things like that. Uh, it lets you change portrait or landscape mode. Um, the width, you can have a custom size, for instance, and that's what I, a lot of times I always do. If I'm trying to create a wallpaper, for instance, um, and I want to know, you know, I want a, some kind of guide to tell me how big that uh, that image is going to be on my drawing area, I'll set it. And all, all this does is create a box on your um, drawing area that becomes your page size. And uh, when you export, you can have a choice to export, you know, from that page, everything within that page, for instance. Um, so sometimes it's helpful to set a custom size uh, before you start. You can toggle the border of that page on and off or the shadow of the border as well. Um, there's another tab for grids uh, to show a grid or not show a grid. Uh, I normally don't work with a grid on, but it could be useful. Um, you can basically get a, a, a graph paper type of background. You can change the uh, grid line color, the origin of the grid, and the spacing of the grid and the units of the grid, so you can really customize that to your heart's content. Oh, on that same page you've got guides. So um, guides are very, very useful. I never used them at first and uh, they were a godsend when I started to create objects with any kind of complexity. Uh, guides are basically um, lines or working lines that you can drag onto your document from the left side, uh, the left side ruler or the top ruler, and you can drag those guides onto your document uh, position them where you want, and you can have multiple vertical guides and multiple horizontal guides. And what that allows for is you to, to really, you know, align objects to those guides very easily. Uh, we'll discuss snapping in a minute, but you can snap objects or nodes to that line, and it really helps if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to lay out accurately uh, the objects on your in your project, for instance. Um, you can also when you create the guides, you can, once a guide is out there on your drawing area, um, you'll see that when you highlight it, it turns a different color. And, of course, you can change that as well. But anyways, uh, once it's highlighted, if you double-click, it actually pops up a nice floating dialog where you can move the grid or the guide um, to whatever uh, position you want on the document. So you can really, really get accurate um, with Inkscape if you need to. So that covers grids and guides. There's also a snap tab on that uh, document properties dialog box. And snaps are something that kind of hard to explain if you, uh, you know, I come from from the AutoCAD type of experience. So what that, um, what that does in AutoCAD is very similar. It allows you to, when you're drawing something out of nodes, for instance, it will um, kind of think of a magnetized type of line. Once you're close enough to that line, it will actually always snap on that line. It will always create that node right on the line. And you can snap, you can set object snaps. So for instance, you can uh, um, set these preferences so that it will snap to the path of an object or to the nodes of an object. You can set the sensitivity of the snapping. 
Um, you can set it to snap to grid lines, for instance. If you're going to use a grid line background we just spoke about, um, it makes it very easy to draw accurate things. If you set your grid up to be, you know, 10 millimeter squares, um, you can make sure your nodes are, you know, on one of those squares, and it becomes very easy to create a nice, um, accurate geometry. You can also snap to guides, um, which I find useful. I use guides a lot, and uh, being able to snap to them uh, is very useful as well. Uh, another useful tool, a little more advanced um, than the standard ones, is the alignment and distribution tool. That's a separate dialog. You can, you know, so if say you create a group of objects, you can select those objects either by just clicking on each one, holding Shift, and you know, clicking multiple objects to select a bunch of them. Or you can actually window a bunch of objects um, to select them all, and it'll show you that they're all selected. Um, once that's done and they're selected, if you select the alignment dialog, alignment and distribution dialog box, it gives you um, probably 10 or 20 ways to align the objects, um, or sorry, about 10 ways to align the objects. So you can center them all. Um, you can align the left sides, the right sides, the tops. Uh, you can even do alignment of um, text anchors and things like that. You can also distribute the objects. So if you had a series of um, circles, say for instance, and you wanted them all to be spaced equally, um, what I normally do is, is create, say, five objects, five circular objects, and then uh, um, I space the, the left one over where I want it, the right one where I want it, then I highlight them all and hit, you know, distribute equidistantly horizontally and it just spaces them out equally. You can um, distribute them with their right-hand edges, their left-hand edges, uh, put equal spaces between their left and right-hand edges, all kinds of different options there. Uh, one thing I um, I likely didn't cover was the um, when you're doing these multiple selections you can actually um, cycle through all the objects that you've created using the tab key. So if you're having trouble finding an object, so one, of the, one of the difficulties is in Inkscape and any vector editor I would assume is that you can have um, an order of objects. So you can have one object on top of another object which is great for creating your designs and things um, and it's vital to be able to do that. However, you do have a tendency sometimes to lose sight of objects you've created. So it may be difficult sometimes when you've created, you know, 10 different objects to see um, that, you know, one of those objects is hidden behind another one. And you may not be able to find it again. You may recreate it thinking that you uh, deleted it at some point, things like that. So um, you've also got to be smart when you're editing. You've got to uh, learn the tools properly so that you can select uh, the objects you need and find the objects you need. Um, I'm not the greatest at that. I tend to um, hit the tab key uh, until I find the object I want. And if you've created, you know, 60, 70 objects, that gets pretty tedious. So there are better ways to do it. They just don't come from me. <laughs> Another thing uh, that's uh, very, very useful is if you want to create duplicate objects, you can uh, create one circle, say, um, and then you can either hit uh, edit duplicate, or like I like to do, um, I hit, select the object, hit control D, and it creates a second object right on top of the first. And this way you can create five five identical objects very quickly, just hitting control D, you know, five or six times, and then you'll see that you've created five or six identical objects on top of one another. That can be quite useful as well.
let's see, alignment distribution. What else do we have to uh, cover? Oh, hmm, node editing. Um, node editing is something that's very, very powerful and not not really easy to describe in a podcast, but um, basically, you know, when you create a path or an object, it's made up of nodes, and there are three basic types of nodes. There's corner nodes, smooth nodes, and symmetric nodes. So what you can do with those is, you know, corner node would be a node that has, um, you know, the node itself plus the lines coming off that node could be at any angles. Okay, a sharp corner. Think of a sharp corner. There's also um, a smooth node where uh, it's more like a curved corner. Okay, and then a symmetric node would be a similar to a curved corner, but um, the you know the, the angle that the line comes off of that um, is symmetrical on both sides. It's very difficult for me to describe it without you seeing it and without you trying it. So um, suffice it to say that you know. With the node editing tools, you can really take control of the shape of an object. You could have um, some kind of a fairly complex polygon, and then you you see that you know one corner isn't exactly the way you want it to be. Uh, you'd make sure that 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 object is a path, and you would edit the nodes of that object um, to suit what you want, what it is you want to do. And you can create very very um, good effects. And a lot of times the the quality of what you create is going to be in the details, so it's going to be in all that detail work, that node editing. Um, and what the node editing does is it, you know, it takes a lot of time sometimes um, to go through and edit those nodes. But there are, um, you know, you'll get better at it, quicker at it. Uh, when I say node sculpting, what that is is kind of grabbing a group of nodes and then. Um, either moving them all at once, you know, you could grab a group of five nodes, say you had a, a rectangle, each side is made up of, say, ten nodes, you could window, you know, those ten nodes and move them around, um, or uh, if you hit the Alt key, you can actually uh, grab one of the ten that you've selected and drag it, and you'll see that you get a much smoother type of natural uh, sculpting function to the tool, so that's quite accurate as well are quite useful as well. Again, it's very, very hard for me to describe how it works without you actually trying it. So, um, But it is very useful if you're trying to get objects to match up. Um, sometimes you want to modify text a certain way or logo or something like that. Uh, node editing is really, really powerful when it comes to that, uh, that type of work. Also advanced is you know, XML editing. You might say, well, why is there XML editing in, in a vector-based um, graphics editor. Well, the SVG format, I think, is uh, an XML file format. So it, it's based in a, on an XML type of format. So every object you create in your drawing, for instance, is is created as an XML object. So um, it's an object that has properties, and um, you can actually modify those properties by editing the XML. Um, the XML file itself. In fact, in Inkscape, there is a, a built-in XML editor. So, um, if you, you know, don't be scared by it. If you select a um, polygon, for instance, and you hit Edit um, at the bottom of the Edit menu, you'll see XML editor. It brings up a really simple kind of outlining type of um, editor, and, and just by opening it up and looking at it, you'll see that every uh, object you've created in your drawing, in fact. Uh, its name is is listed, um, and as you click click each 
you know, different type of object, you'll see in the right-hand pane its properties. It'll it'll have its position, its size, uh, its opacity, uh, its style, color, things like that. And you can actually modify those properties um, manually right here in the editor. I don't use it very often, but uh, sometimes it's it's actually very useful for finding objects. If you've created, like I said, a, a big layer cake of um, of objects in your project, uh, and you just can't find the you know that one object you created um, three days ago uh, that's buried underneath there somewhere, sometimes the XML editor is the best way to find it. If you're really keen, you can also um, name your objects uh, something meaningful. Uh, obviously, they're the names are generated by Inkscape when you create the object, but I think you can go in and change those names. So if you really wanted to, uh, you know, take control of, of what you're drawing, you can also name name certain objects. You can also uh, group objects, which is a very useful thing. If you create multiple objects, you can highlight a series of them. For instance, say you create um, two circles and a square, then if you wind, you know those are three separate objects, but if you select the three of them together, either by windowing the three of them or by uh, holding shift and clicking each of the three, uh, they'll all get selected. And then you can hit the group button, um, which is up at the top, or hit control G, and they'll now become one object. Okay, then now you can rotate those three things as if they were one object, or scale them as if they were one object, or uh, change their color to be common, you know, between all three objects, or their stroke or fill or whatever. Um, but you know, the powerful thing is you don't, you can always ungroup those objects. So it's nice if you create a very complex object out of a bunch of multiple objects or a bunch of different objects. Uh, you might want instead of trying to grab them, you know, those ten things all the time and move them around. You might create those ten things, then group them, and treat that as one object that's you know finalized. And then, if you have to later on, um, you can ungroup them and edit each of the ten objects again. So that's quite a useful tool. Uh, layers are another um, more advanced topic. Uh, I don't use layers that much. I know um, my cohort Heathen X uses layers a lot more than I do, judging by what I've seen of his screencasts and stuff. Um, he's obviously much smarter than me. He'll be glad to hear that. I, I think it's not so much smarts. I'm just lazy. I don't create a lot of layers just because I'm lazy, but uh, it is the right right way to do it if you're creating a bunch of uh, objects. Sometimes it's best to, to, to work with things on different layers. And the layers are really um, similar to how they'd be in AutoCAD. They're just, uh, think of them as a series of transparencies laid on top of one another. So you could have all you know these five objects on one layer, um, and have another three or four objects on another layer, and then you can hide and show different layers, um, depending on what you're working on. So that helps as well um, in keeping your your project organized or your drawing organized. Um, let's see if there's a, a couple more advanced topics. One is bitmap tracing. Bitmap tracing is a very complex task, I would think you know, programmatically. But what it means in Inkscape is basically uh, you can import a bitmap, for instance, a photograph, say. Um, you select the photograph once it's imported, and then you go up to the path menu and hit um, path and then trace bitmap. And that gives you, a, you know, several different ways of of creating a path or, or a group of paths out of that bitmap. And it gives you a little, you know, preview window to see what it is you're going to come up with. A lot of times you'll end up creating the preview, 
or creating the the path, um, and then taking a look at it, see if it's what you want, and then go back and 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 redo it. Um, and really, you've got to fiddle around with the settings in there to, to see what it is you want to, you know, what effect it is you want to achieve. But I find it very useful. We we use it at um, at screencasters for as a the only way we had really to to use bitmaps sometimes in our in our web page uh, graphics, for instance. Uh, I've used it for photo editing uh, tasks. So if I bring in a, um, you know, one of the fun things to do is you know bring in a bitmap of something. Um, then you use this trace bitmap to create some kind of vector representation of it, and then you can fill, use a fill or stroke or, or gradients and, and turn that into some kind of graphic. So you can do a silhouette of, say, a, a person very easily using a trace bitmap option. So you can lots of things you can do with that. Again, you've got to experiment, uh, as with a lot of things in Inkscape. Um, then there are the effects. There are various effects uh, that you can do obviously from the effects menu you can uh, do things like modify the color in the latest version of Inkscape I believe there's uh, things that will let you desaturate or uh, add more saturation uh, modify the hue make things brighter or darker you can do things like modify the path so you can create uh, an object a vector object a path and kind of give it a perspective effect or give it a whirl effect or um, even there's one effect called uh, jitter nodes so if I create an, a nice rectangle um, and make sure that's got lots of nodes on the on all four sides I can and use jitter nodes um, the jitter nodes effect to kind of create a rough outline to to create a jaggedy type of outline which is sometimes what you're looking for you know, Inkscape is like any other open source project. It's actually gaining a lot of steam lately, it seems. So there's there's lots of development work going on. So it seems like every day on the mailing list, there's some new effect or or tool being worked on. So, um, you know, really, you've just got to see what's there in the version you have and, and try them out. There's not, um, you know, on the newer effects, there's not going to be a lot of help on them. Um, so you really got to try them out, see what they do. Uh, see if they can be useful or, or or add to what you're trying to achieve. So that covers um, you know most of the or some of the basic and advanced uh, things about Inkscape. So really, I want to really just discuss fairly quickly what what's ahead uh, on the roadmap for Inkscape. Well, and this is just you know judging from from reading I've done on the site is um, there is a roadmap you can check it out on Inkscape.org um, to see it. Um, some of the things that seemed interesting to me that are being worked on are improvements to PDF import and export, support for SVG animations, um, improvements to extension handling, like how to you know how to browse effects and things like that. Um, there may be a better way. Right now, you're just picking from a menu, um, but there may be a better way, uh, like you would see in other programs, where you might get a live preview of what that effect does. Um, User documentation, documentation improvements, that's always good. Uh, Visio support and um, uh, improvements to SVG compliance as well. And also uh, the implementation of color management. That might be very important to people as well. So after all this, where do you go um, to get Inkscape? Well, most distros have it in their repositories. Um, I run Ubuntu Feisty. And it's in that distro. It's in their repository, sorry. Um, but you can get it at inkscape.org. 
Um, you can download it there. You can get versions for Windows. I run it on Windows at work as well. It runs every bit the same as it does on uh, on Linux, um, which is a great thing because I can take uh, files that I work on at home and bring them to work and uh, work on them then, I uh, guess, when I'm supposed to be working. But I can bring them there and fiddle with them there as well. Now, some good sources for learning Inkscape. Obviously, a uh, one-hour long podcast uh, of me droning on is not going to be... Um, the best way to learn Inkscape for sure, probably one of the worst ways. But there's a ton of sources for help um, in learning Inkscape. First of all, the application itself has a great help menu. Um, not so much just the main help file, um, but if you hit the help menu, you can get an Inkscape manual. But what I found like the most useful thing you can do if you're new to Inkscape is um, the tutorials uh, submenu under help. And what these are, are are really just a series of Inkscape documents or you know SVG files um, that cover basic topics, uh, shapes, advanced tracing, calligraphy, design, and some tips and tricks. And the the really neat thing about them is that when you open them up, they're just an Inkscape file, and you read them, and uh, they're very well written. But the really amazing thing is that that they demonstrate things that you can actually interact with. So when they're de demonstrating how to uh, scale or rotate an object, they actually, in the body of the text, will give you the object, they'll tell you to click on it, and they'll explain what you should do to modify it. And you can play around with it right inside the help file or the tutorial file and follow the steps. And actually, that's how I learned most of the stuff um, that I use every day in Inkscape. I learned from those tutorial files. So they're, they're actually a godsend. So that's a great way to learn Inkscape. At Inkscape.org, there's um, Tav Myung's book. Uh, sorry if I get the pronunciation wrong on that, but that's a, an awesome book um, that he's put together that's available for um, to buy, or you can view it online as well. Um, and that's very, very useful. Very well, uh, well done document. There's a French language book by Elisa de Castro Guerra, and there's a few manuals there as well. And it has a collection of user-contributed tutorials. So uh, other things, um, other sources of learning Inkscape, there's the Inkscape user mailing list. If you go to Inkscape.org, you'll find that, um, those mailing lists. Uh, there's a developer's mailing list as well if you're having problems compiling the program um, or working with the program for some reason. There's also the Inkscape forums at InkscapeForum.com. I think there's a few different forums that uh, are available. The one I... I tend to hit sometimes is inkscapeforum.com. There's the Inkscape Tutorials blog at inkscapetutorials.wordpress.com. Uh, I believe that's Ryan Lurch's site. I think he's running it, and he's um, he's compiling tutorials from all over the place, uh, from himself and from other people, um, to give people kind of a one-stop place to to get great uh, tutorial information on Inkscape. Very very useful, and. Um, there's a lot of very good screencasts. <laughs> I chuckle when I see that because um, HeathenX and I have uh, started a site a while back where we host our Inkscape screencasts, and that's um, at screencasters.heathenx.org. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, make the plug, um, Chess. But um, there's also a lot of other good screencasts. If you go onto YouTube and just do a search for Inkscape, you'll find a bunch of them there as well uh, that are you know more than what uh, HeathenX and myself have put up. And uh, that's basically it. Uh, sorry if I ran really long and uh, 
but hopefully you got some use out of uh, out of all this blathering. Um, it's a very very useful program if uh, if you're at all in interested in graphics um, and graphic design. Uh, don't limit yourself to just uh, you know a bitmap editing program because uh, you'll be surprised that after a while of tinkering with uh, Inkscape, it uh, it's very very useful for doing uh, you know things like web graphics and logos and, and lots of little things you can do very very quickly in Inkscape and actually sometimes you know a lot quicker than you could ever do them um, in a bitmap editor. So um, hopefully, if you're interested in graphics, you'll give it a try. Uh, I'm sure it'll be well worth your while. Okay. Um, and that is all. Okay, well, I'd like to thank Richard uh, for doing this two-parter on Inkscape. It's really been a great episode, a great series of episodes, a great topic. Uh, Inkscape is something I've certainly played around with, but uh, don't feel comfortable enough to talk about it, just like the, uh, the uh, episode we did on, on the GIMP that Klaatu did and the audio stuff that Duncan did. So this has just been fantastic. So thank you very much, Richard. Let's get to a listener tip. Hi, this is Brian with a quick listener tip. Sometimes it would be handy to have the information that our BIOS already knows about our computer. For instance, if you want to know how much RAM you have in each socket of your motherboard, or if you're trying to get the model number of your IBM computer, the service tag of your Dell, things like that. There's all sorts of good information in there, but it's not obvious how to get at that information from Linux. So, the command we need is DMI decode. D-M-I-D-E-C-O-D-E. You do have to be root to run this command. I'm using Ubuntu, so I'm just going to use the sudo command. If you're using a system that doesn't use the sudo command, then you'll have to start a terminal as root to do these commands. First off, let's learn about the command. So we're just going to type Alt F2, and in the box that comes up, we're going to type in man colon D-M-I-D-E-C-O-D-E, and hit return. The DMI decode command does have a few options you might want to take a look at. We're not going to explore those today. Of note, at the very bottom, under the bugs section, you'll see a little warning that the BIOS doesn't always have accurate information in it. It's not the fault of the DMI code command, it's just that the BIOS doesn't actually know what's going on. In my experience, that's been rare, but I thought I should point that out. Now on to actually running the command. I'm simply going to type in Alt F2 again. And in GNOME, I'm going to type gksu space d-m-i-d-e-c-o-d-e space the greater than sign, another space, and a file name. I'm going to say biosinfo.txt and hit return. Now, if I had been running KDE, the process is almost identical. Alt F2, only I'm going to type in kdesu space decode space the greater than sign, space, and the name of the file, whatever I'm going to call it. If we open up our home folder, which in Ubuntu is Places, home folder, you're going to find a file in there called BIOS Info. Double-click, and there you have it. Everything your BIOS knows about your own computer. There's a lot of good information in there. I have found that name-brand PCs seem to be more consistent about providing information my, the IBM and Dell units I've tried it on have been uh, considerably more complete than uh, some of my white box units. Again, if you're using a system that doesn't use the sudo command to gain root privileges, then just open up a terminal, su to root, 
and then type in DMI decode space the greater than sign space and the name of the file that you want to give it. So that's my quick listener tip. Hopefully you've picked up two things from this. How to get a nicely formatted man page displayed on your screen quickly and easily, and how to use the DMI decode command to get more information about your hardware from your BIOS. Hey, Chess, what's going on? Aristotle Wild. They're from the forum. So I picked up when they recently went on sale. This thing's pretty cool. And uh, just testing out Gizmo, seeing how it works out. And I guess that's it. Keep up the good work. Show's great. Thanks very much. That uh, that snippet cut out there just a hair. I think he was talking about he uh, got a new microphone or a uh, new headphone and was just testing that out with Gizmo. But uh, glad that it worked out and uh, it sounded great other than that one little, you know, the one little patch that broke out there. But uh, uh, thanks, Aristotle Wild. I appreciate that. Let's get to some emails here. Here's one from Jose. Uh, Jose says, I just wanted to uh, share a tip to all the Ubuntu listeners who want to try out Gutsy Gibbon. I had done a fresh install of Gutsy on my wife's laptop. She is now a new Linux user. That's one more on our side. But I had trouble installing many packages on our new system. For example, when I tried to install Wine and XChat, AppGet would complain about broken packages and stop there. Since I've been using Debian for a long time, I had a feeling that the sources.list file in the slash Etsy slash apt folder may have errors. With the help of the Ubuntu IRC chat room, a user suggested ubuntu-nl.org slash source-o-matic. So that's ubuntu-nl.org slash source-o-matic. The website was able to help me regenerate a new sources.list file for my wife's laptop. I regenerated the file, ran apt-get upgrade, followed by an apt-get uh, sorry, apt-get update followed by an apt-get upgrade just in case, and now I am able to install any packages just fine, including Frozen Bubble. I was very close to a reinstall, but thanks to the many people in the Ubuntu IRC chat room in Freenode and Sourcematic, I was able to resolve this one quickly. I'm not a newbie, but I just wanted to say that I love your show. You're doing a great service to the Linux community, and I feel because of your show, it's increasing the number of Linux users. Keep up the fantastic job. Thanks, Jose. That's a very nice email. I'm glad that you were able to resolve that problem. That's a good website to have. And let me read that one more time. That's ubuntu-nl.org slash source-o-matic. Okay, here's one from Brian. Uh, Brian says, uh, hi, Chess. Just want to let you know you've made it overseas to the United Kingdom. We have a steadily growing user uh, Linux user base over here. I found the podcast excellent. Even though I've grown up with Linux, I think the first distro I got was Red Hat 8. And I'm currently using Fedora 7. A little update for you. I run a Dell PowerEdge server, Xeon 2.8 gigahertz with SCSI HotSwap RAID 5 array using the Dell Perk 4 RAID controller, and it works 100% with Fedora 7. Since listening to your podcast, I've made my office look at Linux in serious light. No mean feat, as we are a Microsoft distributor. We support about 400 networks across the UK. I am one of four managers in the head office and had a meeting with our MD... Raven Kramer, I'm not quite sure what that means, but um, he has agreed we need to look at supporting and shipping Linux on some of our server installs. We have already shipped two, one being uh, used as a secure router slash VPN concentrator and one as a secure file server. Both of these shipped on HP 1U rack servers. 
Anyway, I'll keep you posted. Keep up the excellent work. Look forward to hearing the next installment. I've passed on links to the podcast to all of our engineers, so hopefully as they are getting more exposure to Linux, I'll start pointing them to relevant episodes. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot to say I found the podcast on iTunes, and it has made the purchase of my new iPod well worth it. Thanks and best wishes. And that was from Brian. It's funny. I actually think I kind of referenced this last week when I talked about the someone who had sent me the email about the iPod. Um, but thank you very much, Brian. That's a great email. Uh, here's one from VJ. VJ says, hi, Chess. Thanks for the great podcast. I especially liked your home server series. Me with my friends went to buy a decent server hardware and host a uh, website, email server, FTP, and some Java ser- server applications. Can you give us any pointers or web links which may be useful? I appreciate your help. Thanks, VJ. Uh, VJ, I recommend checking out howtoforge.com. I think it's a .com, but um, yeah, howtoforge.com. They have great tutorials and, and how-tos on how to um, you know install a, a variety of server applications with different uh, distributions. You know, they'll they'll take Ubuntu or they'll take Debian or Fedora and they'll say, here's how to install, uh, you know, LAMP, um, you know, Linux Apache, um, MySQL and PHP or what have you. Uh, that's a great site. I really enjoy how to forge quite a lot. Uh, so anyway, uh, thanks VJ. Glad you're enjoying the podcast. Here's one from Eric. Eric says, uh, thanks for your podcast. I read an InfoWorld article that led me to the security monkey blog, which led me to the Linux link tech show, which led me to you a roundabout way to get there, but I made it. Thanks for the great show. I have been hopping distros for about two years before settling into PC Linux OS and Memphis. I started a Linux, Linux class in college a couple of weeks ago, the same time I found your podcast, and your podcast really helped reinforce what I'm learning. I especially like the podcast about audio and Linux. I used to be a professional audio and video editor before getting into IT, and I have been longing to build a software studio using open source. Which brings me to my question. I have a Gina, G-I-N-A, sound card that cost me about $500 back around 99 or 2000 I fear that I won't be able to find Linux drivers for the card. It has eight analog in- inputs for my mixer and SPDIF in and out. Any suggestions where to look for Linux drivers? I don't even think that the manufacturer is in business any longer. Keep up the great show. I've recommended it to my professor and any student that will listen. You rock. <laughs> From Eric. Uh, Eric, um, what I would suggest is, uh, you know, uh, I would install Linux on the machine that's got this uh, card. Uh, and uh, once you've got it installed, uh, open up a terminal and type dmessage. That's D-M-E-S-G. And um, uh, you can actually do dmessage and then a, a greater than sign and then put a file name you want to save the output as, call it dmessage.txt, and it will save it in a text file so you can peruse it at your leisure. Um, but And then look to see if it recognizes this sound card. I did some Googling, and there are a couple drivers in the Linux kernel for Gina sound cards. I don't know if it's yours. There's one that's called snd-gina20 and snd-gina24. Um, those are... Uh, uh, Linux kernel modules for which are drivers for the sound cards for some of these sound cards. Uh, so maybe it was, it's supported. I saw some posts in the uh, Fedora forums about this. And I think I came across a couple in the Ubuntu forums as well. Uh, but you know, D message, if you've got the card installed, uh, will hopefully pick up on the card and, and tell you if it, if it recognizes the card and knows the name of the card and that kind of thing, that means it's probably supported. Uh, but you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, I've never, tested out that card so if anybody has please post in the forms maybe post in the comments to this particular episode 
let's see. Here's one from Jack. This is kind of interesting. Uh, this is the last email for this week. Jack actually forwarded a, an email to me, and he just says, Hi, Chess. Thought you might like to hear about this. And I won't read the whole email, but I'll read sort of an excerpt from it. It's about a school. I think it's a school in... Massachusetts. But anyway, it says on Wednesday, October 31st, and it gives the name of this school is holding a technology open house. It will take place between nine and 11 AM. And it says the purpose of this open house is to announce our recent adoption of Ubuntu Linux to meet our educational computer needs. We are inviting school officials and it staff from schools located in Watertown and adjacent communities. They will be able to test drive the Ubuntu workstations in our computer lab and discuss the details of the windows to Linux conversion with our own it staff. This is awesome. Visitors will find a gallery of sample work that students have produced with OpenOffice, TuxPaint, and other open source programs. It will also give away copy, or we will also give away copies of the Ubuntu Live install CD to our guests. And it says this uh, school appears to be the first school in uh, Massachusetts to adopt Ubuntu Linux as our main computing platform. Now that we have seen how well it works here, our next step is to initiate a technology transfer project with our sister school in Armenia. In June 2008, our fifth grade students will travel to Armenia and help set up a computer lab at an elementary school in an impoverished region of Armenia. Our plan is to ship a complete turnkey set of workstations and servers that have already been localized for the Armenian language. And it goes on with more details, but I just thought that was just a very cool email. Um, Jack, thank you so much for forwarding that to me. Yeah, I was really excited to get this. And it just, I mean, that is so cool. That is just so cool. Not only that this school in Massachusetts has completely switched entirely to Ubuntu, it says, you know, uh, for all their education, educational computer needs, uh, but that they're putting together this this pilot, you know, this program, uh, this technology transfer project with the with another school in Armenia, and that they're going to set up Ubuntu workstations with the Armenian language, with the localization already set up, and they're going to go over there and set it up for them. I just think that's really cool. And it it talks about the visitors will see sample work that students have produced with OpenOffice, TuxPaint, and things, and that's just very cool stuff. Thank you very much, Jack. And that is a great way to end this particular episode. So it's time to wrap it up. Okay, well, uh, that's the conclusion of this little two-part series on Inkscape. Thanks again uh, to Richard Quarren for doing that. I really appreciate it. Really great stuff. And thanks to everybody else who's been sending me emails. I got several donations this past week. I really appreciate that. It does help towards my hosting fees and my uh, Libsyn fees. Libsyn is the service I use that actually um, hosts the files. Uh, The nice thing about Libsyn is... Uh, you don't have to worry about bandwidth at all. Um, you know, they give you a certain amount that you can upload each month, and they have different levels with different prices, you know, of course, depending on how much you need to upload every month. And uh, then you don't have to worry about downloads at all. So the Libsyn service is fantastic. You know, I hear other people talk about bandwidth problems for audio files and stuff, and I don't know why they don't just use Libsyn. It's a, <laughs> it works very well, even though I have occasional issues with them, but... I mean, I've been using them for almost two years now without any real serious problems. Uh, so, but anyway, thanks so much to the people who sent me those donations. It's uh, it's very, very appreciated. Uh, please check out the Linux Reality Forums at linuxreality.com slash forums. And feel free to join that if you haven't already and participate in all of our cool discussions going on in there. It really is a great place to hang out. Very nice. 
and very friendly. And there's some threads in there about Ubuntu Gutsy, a lot of people talking about that. I've done a couple of upgrades to Gutsy on some some secondary laptops and things. And uh, so maybe I'll talk about that at some point in the next couple of weeks. Uh, uh, went pretty well. I ran into a couple little minor snags, but nothing major. Uh, so anyway, hope you all have a great week and a great weekend. And I'll catch you all next time. This has been Episode 83 of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye-bye.